Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to a mildly stressed edition of Romaniacs. We've got our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre tonight, Wednesday 12th. I'm Dorian Linsky and I'm presenting this show and that one too. By the time you hear this, you'll know whether the continuity wing of Leave.eu have effected a citizen's arrest for treason. In which case, please donate to our crowdfunded defence appeal. Everyone's grifting, why can't we? <laughs> Today's regulars aren't appearing in the live show, so their levels of angst are more manageable. Back after too long an absence is Roz Taylor, Research Manager of the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, the three Ts. Hi, Roz. Welcome back to the show. Hello. There was a great piece this week on LSE Brexit blogs, which you edit, which says that Brexit has unlocked existential angst on both sides and leavers are suffering from it as badly as Remainers, which is good. Um, <laughs> t- tell us what it discovered. Yeah, this was by Christopher Browning, an academic at Warwick, and he was basically saying that what has happened since the referendum is that it has shaken up people's sense of security, of having a uh, self-identity, and it has led to a degree of existential angst, really. And it's obviously going to be particularly the case for people who are very invested in Brexit, whether they're EU citizens or not living in, living in the UK. But um, ultimately, that has led to the creation of these badges of identity, leavers and remainers. And, you know, frankly, we, we're the ultimate expression of that, are we not, uh, as remainers? It's in the name. It's in the name. Yeah, so the reason why leavers are as miserable as we are is because they fee- they were already feeling shaken up by the way things like austerity had disrupted their lives, and now they feel cheated as well. Yes, Great. I know it's hard to believe they feel cheated, but, but they do, uh, because um, it's all taking a long time. <laughs> so the only happy people are the ones who aren't paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Also with us is Nina Schick, political commentator, expert on disinformation and hybrid warfare and director of polling at Anders Fogg Rasmussen's Global Consultancy. Is it Fogg? Fogg. Fogg. Yeah. There we go. I knew I'd get that wrong. <laughs> I could just see it looming up. Hi, hi, Nina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? You explained to us before how Germany just isn't all that fussed about Brexit. Did you see the story this week that Brexit's driving German asset managers' salaries upwards? Ooh, thus, great. <laughs> thus not sticking it to the elites. Yeah, uh, the great Brexit dividend. <laughs> I, I mean, I've just spent a lot of my summer in uh, Germany and certainly the mood in Paris and Berlin is that Brexit and particularly financial services, they might be enjoying a bit of a Brexit bonanza. So I think they're happy to cash in on that in the months after March 2019. So European bankers are the, hmm. are the winners here. <laughs> Today's special guest is columnist for The Guardian, a born-again cycling nut, an incorrigible Romaniac, and a speaker on the Left Against Brexit tour, which has been travelling around Britain over the summer. All the way from Vauxhall, it's Zoe Williams. Hi, Zoe. Welcome. Hi, thank you. We're going to be returning to Labour and Brexit later in the show, but how's the Left Against Brexit tour been for you? What were the, the how's highlights? How's it going? Well, um... Look, it's interesting, right? They're, they're very, they're very different. All these places are very different. So Nottingham was incredibly remain. They really understood 
everybody really understood the kind of process because the, the whole point of the Left Against Brexit tour is that until the Labour Party comes out in favour of Remain, there's not there's no kind of route short of a revolution out of Brexit. So really, you have to focus all your energy on the institutions and the organisations that you're that, that you know. Ideally, if you're in the Left Against Against Brexit tour audience, you're already part of. Mm. So I went to Nottingham, and they were like really, really on side. And I was like, okay, well, if you're really on side, are you in your CLP? Are you doing? Are you pushing these motions? Are you making sure you bring something to conference? Are you in momentum? Are you signing the petition? Are you looking for a consultation? Are you in your union? And uh, <laughs> one of the one of the chair starts laughing, and I was like, why why are you laughing? And he said, well, he was kicked out of the Labour Party years ago for being a militant. <laughs> <laughs> and they were very left and they were very remain a little bit too left not very <laughs> um, then we, then the next night we were in Birmingham and Birmingham was the most depressing experience you've ever had in your life because just everybody, <laughs> everybody just generally was, everybody was just standing Gosh. there going and they were quite eggy and they were like I don't know why you're talking about the left you need to talk to businesses you need to talk to students you need to talk all these really hackneyed ideas like oh let's get a great big conversation full of full of everybody and all agree mm-hmm. and I was like yeah okay we've been through this come on we're not all Someone Boris Johnson yeah. you know <laughs> did, 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 Andrew Donis is doing that other people are doing that we're actually this is actually a plan I'm trying to describe to you a plan and they were like well I'm part of Warwick Ramonas and we have much bigger meetings than this and we're not left at all and it's like oh so anyway it's been kind of frustrating sometimes it's very inspiring Bristol was incredible Nottingham was really exciting as I said but it is a mixed picture Birmingham is a very, very pragmatic place. The whole of the West Midlands, it's got this kind of, well, uh, let's get straightforwardness. Anyway, uh, speaking of someone who's from there. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's right, though, but they really, they, they, I mean, we're, you were talking earlier about self-identity. I think that kind of, you know, who you are and, mm. and has to obliterate who everybody else is. So it's like, I am a pragmatist, you must be wrong. You're like, we didn't used to talk about politics like this. Well, the whole thing, you know, when I, I was doing research into the kind of anti-Brexit movement, like the whole, the phrases you kept hearing were kind of, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom and have different sort of mouthpieces and that you can't all agree. Yeah. So when I saw Left Against Brexit was, was happening, I thought that's brilliant. That's like another part of the jigsaw. Yeah, I know, but you get a lot of resistance to even badging yourself as left. It's like, oh, you should just be a lot more, com- oh, no, not comradely, but a lot more kind of collegiate. And I'm like, well, we are collegiate. We're not. Were they? Cent- it's not like are I these people centrists? Are these Brummy centrists? The Brummy centrists <laughs> is an attack of the Brummy centrists. I mean, geographically, they're centrists, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they have to be centrists. Well, it's an interesting mix of, of sort of uh, avowed Corbyn supporters like Gary Young and Manuel Cortez and people like Seb Dance and Catherine West. So how's, how are the, the sort of Corbyn left and the centrists uh, Look, they're not along? At the moment, they're not getting along. And at, at the moment, there is still a hardcore of, Labour, of Corbyn supporters who see the Remain project as an explicit attack on Corbyn. And it's hard to persuade them otherwise when Chukka is both the face of Remain and comes out saying things like the Labour Party is institutionally racist. It does seem like a proxy issue for an attack on Corbyn. But at the same time, there are a lot, there are a lot many, many people on the left who see Brexit increasingly unfolding as a far-right project Mm. and it's absolutely in their DNA. If they can't resist this, if they can't resist Jacob Rees-Mogg trying to turn us into Singapore in the channel, then what? Who, what's the, even the point of the left? Mm. So you've got this kind of real existential mm. crisis, actually. And I again, going back to the, your, your point, Roz, I can completely see why it's, why it's so... Um, 
anguishing. I completely see the anguish because even in what you might call quite a narrow slice of political opinion, i.e. the range of people on the Corbyn left, mm. it's mm. causing these huge wrenches of like who we are and what the point of us is. Well, I think you've got a problem with uh, idealism and the, uh, what you could say, pretty much the far left of the Labour Party. And that, partic- that idealism sometimes takes a form of um, supporting leave. You know, we know yeah. that they've stopped the war, that kind of thing. Yeah, very, yeah. There were some very, very leave people there. And so that's very hard to let go of. I know. But um, when you look at the Stop, Stop Trump rally, which was absolutely massive, and it was organised by Michael Chesham, who also runs Another Europe is Possible, which is who set mm. up Left Against Brexit, he said, you know, all these people are our people. If you spoke to any single one of these people, they would be anti-Brexit, they'd be anti-Boris Johnson, they'd be anti-Theresa May, they'd be anti everything associated with this Tory project. But at the moment, there just isn't the space and the kind of loudest voices are exactly, as you say, those Lexiters who are saying, oh, you know, the EU is a neoliberal conspiracy. Well, you know, sure, but the government is a neoliberal conspiracy. It doesn't mean I want no government. (laughs) Everything's a neoliberal conspiracy. More on the neoliberal conspiracy later, plus the Women for a People's Vote campaign. Embarrassingly, we had a manal on the show last week, so we're talking about it this week with some actual women in the room. <laughs> also, how is the Brextremist Smash Checkers Week going, and can we stand yet another fictional Boris Johnson leadership challenge? Plus, Star Wars The Farce Awakens, as the ERG planned Britain's own space force. What's the reality beyond Operation Yellowhammer? <laughs> these are all like very bad spy novels, aren't they? <laughs> and much more after these quick reminders from Nina. If you support Romaniacs on the crowdfunding platform Patreon, congratulations, you're listening in the future. Because Patreon backers now get the show a day early, hot off the podcasting press, the very moment it's ready. We send each episode direct to supporters via Patreon every Thursday, and you can listen via Patreon's own player or download the file onto your favourite device before everyone else hears it on Friday morning. And of course, supporters get those sought-after Romaniacs mugs, t-shirts and bags too, as well as an exclusive weekly column from one of our panellists. Just go to patreon.com and search Romaniacs to find out more. Plus, if you'd like to cleanse your mind of Brexit, you can try our companion show, the pop culture podcast Big Mouth. Giants of dance music Orbital are special guests on this week's show. They'll be talking about their lives on the front line of electronic music and their excellent new album, Monsters Exist. Find Big Mouth at audioboom.com, search Big Mouth. And you can support us by visiting patreon.com and try searching Romaniacs too. Thanks, Nina. Open wide, it's Brexit news. Firstly, the Tory right have declared this to be Smash Checkers Week, which is interesting considering that figures as diverse as Peter Mandelson, Aaron Banks, Michelle Barnier and the inevitable Mog have already declared Theresa May's proposal to be a pile of matchwood anyway. That didn't deter Boris Johnson from describing Checkers as a suicide vest, which Alan Duncan MP described as the most disgusting moment in modern British politics. There's a lot of competition for that honour, so well done, Johnson. Nor did it discourage former Minister Steve Baker from threatening yet again that up to 80 Tory MPs would rebel to defeat it. Ros, the deal seems to be sort of uh, unworkable anyway. Why are the ERG working so hard to destroy it? Is it a, a sort of symbolic target? Yeah, because it's, uh, it was a step towards a slightly more reasonable Brexit posture uh, and therefore it must be kicked down. I mean, Mich- Michel Barnier was not 100% negative about it, although in recent days he's made it quite clear that it's not going to be a runner. Nonetheless, he welcomed it as a move in the right direction. Therefore, it has to be toppled over. And the ERG have basically realised that uh, they, they were being criticised for not putting any forward any ideas of their own. So 
what we've seen this week is a bit of a, uh, a flush of lovely new ideas, uh, except they're not new ideas, according to the ERG, uh, for dealing with, in particular, the Northern Irish border problem, but also generally the problem of trade and what happens to it after Brexit. They don't. They're not good with answers, are they? No. There's some. There's some wonderful bits from the booklets. They, uh, booklet they they put out yesterday on uh, free trade, the economist free trade, and uh, you know there are, there are one word answers to some of the questions. Like, won't this mean huge disruption in trade? No. <laughs> um, which is, you know, uh, it's a view. Um, so yeah. <laughs> So you've written about how the language around Brexit creates confusion that's, that's sort of useful for the ideologues. Mm. What do you think checkers uh, means to, to to people in the country? Do you think it's a widely understood? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it went straight from a kind of very complex document that people were kind of struggling to get their heads around into a byword for soft and also rubbish Brexit. Um, and that and that process, I don't think, was developed enough. So I don't think it went from this complex document and we digested it, understood it, and then started calling it checkers. I think mm. it just seeged straight into checkers. I don't think... The, I'm actually quite grateful to the ERG because I think, actually, it's a terrible idea... You know, it's a ter- soft Brexit is, if anything, worse than w- the, the worst case scenario because it, d- it delivers absolutely nothing and and severs a huge amount that's important. So I'm kind of... I, but And yet I don't think mainstream politicians would have resisted soft Brexit. I think the tendency is they love to look like people who have caught up with a new reality. And I think this time a year ago, the new reality was democracy has spoken and the realists were saying, let's find the least harmful possible Brexit and get on with it. Now, if those people had kind of dominated I think we would have just sailed into a soft Brexit and the fact that it was actually highly contested the purpose for it was so was was so ideological and so pointless we wouldn't have had any space to say hang on a second is this does this resemble in any way the kind of control that people were saying they wanted we would have just had to you know you would have been outside reasonable opinion if you had wanted no soft Brexit now because the ERG are resisting it so hard it kind of leaves the space open for us to also resist it and say actually bizarrely Boris Johnson is right you know he's not right with his Islamophobic metaphors he's not right in his in any of his behavior but he is right that soft Brexit is completely pointless so, you know, it's, it's actually quite useful to have that space still open because we haven't t- traditionally been very good at keeping it open for ourselves. And he's right because the soft Brexit, that what we call soft Brexit now, is not what we were calling soft Brexit two years ago. <laughs> soft Brexit two years ago was staying in the single market. Mm. Now soft Brexit is an unworkable fudge. You know, it, it's extraordinary the way that the window has shifted. And uh, the ERG gang have reportedly been plotting to oust Theresa May, um, which which leaked, unfortunately. Um, do they have that power, these... I mean, there's obviously these sort of 80 headbangers. Um, they don't seem very popular with their uh, colleagues. Well, um, all they need is the signatures, right? So they do have the power on paper, I think. I mean, I've never seen it happen. I've never seen a very hardcore Tory right completely trample over the rest of the party. Mm. But technically they can do it, yeah. How would that play out? Well, I mean, I think if they push their hand too early, then, as you say, they're very unpopular with the rest of their colleagues. They were, their colleagues wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, vote with them. 
Um, but you, then you'd have to you have to rely on the Labour Party here to also not want to bring Theresa May down. But the Labour Party does, even though even though it's not ready, they do want general election. Um, and so I don't think you can rely on the Labour Party. I think I think that. But you also, I mean, that kind of brings in the thing that most people, even the complete loonies, are more scared on on in the Tory Party are more scared of a Corbyn government than they are of the wrong kind of Brexit. Yes. So that's such a motivating factor. Yeah, them, yeah. So so if they felt like they could topple Theresa May, install their own candidate without any kind of constitutional ramifications that led to a general election, then they would do it tomorrow. But I don't think they're confident of that and I think they're right not to be confident. And do we think that, that, that Boris Johnson, by saying that, that, that this is the worst of, of all options, that even staying, even remaining would be, um, would be better, because he's a, a shameless opportunist uh, with no soul, is it conceivable that, that he could be positioning himself for a reversal, that there is a, there is a route for Boris, for, not Boris, for Johnson, <laughs> um, to, sort of, to sort of reposition himself as a kind of... I mean, look, it's, it's really interesting. Did you see that tweet by Matt Kelly from the New European this week who said he had it from a very, very well-placed source that Boris regretted the whole experiment, that he regretted ever having come out oh, with leave, that. that he regretted ever having filed the wrong column, that he wished he'd filed the first column, the one in which he was an ardent Remainer, that all his hopes for it have come to naught. Um, I think it's not... I wouldn't put it past him at all to say, OK, this didn't work, Remain is a really good idea after all, and I'm going to be the face of Remain. Because, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, what would stop him doing that? Honour would stop him, consistency would stop him, uh-huh. any kind of moral compass would stop him, but <laughs> no. he doesn't have those things. Um, you know, I don't want him on our team, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if he didn't arrive and try and lead it. Yeah, I agree. I think if anyone has a chutzpah, Johnson has a chutzpah. Um, it's, it's amazing what you possible. can do when you're weighed down by, you know, sort of morality and principle, isn't it? You can just do, you can just <laughs> can do you anything. Do it's like that like. kind of, you know, nothing is true and everything is possible kind but of I, approach. But I also feel like there is a moment, people put up with a huge amount of somebody who they already know to be deceitful. So you keep thinking, well, why didn't that finish him off? Why didn't that finish him off? And it's because... You know, what really finishes politicians off is if they're revealed to be something other than what they said. And he's always said that this is the kind of person he is. But you can only go so far with that. There comes a point at which it's just too much. And I think he might be getting near that point. Yeah, I, I think I would agree. And it's interesting, I had a bit of an exchange on Twitter this week. Sorry, Twitter again. But um, but there was somebody who was saying, you know, we can't possibly have Boris in our camp. He must recant. They must all grovel at the altar of, you know. And I said, no, 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 no. You, you just, you, sorry, you can't have that. This is not the 17th century. And, you know, it's a, it's a conversion from Protestant to Catholic or vice versa. You can't have that. We can't have this kind of, you know, ideological purity holding us back. You've got to accept. If the guy says he's going to change his mind, then thank God. God, you know. The thing is with, with Boris Johnson is that he would totally, they wouldn't even have to, the Inquisition wouldn't have to do any work, would they? He'd go, just whatever, whatever. I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll believe anything. I'll be a Muslim if you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> just, just as long as it sorts me out. Got yeah. Turkish heritage, yes, of course. <laughs> um, Nina, what do the um, EU27 and the Commission make of the of the Chequers proposals? And, how, and also at the same time, there's talk of uh, Merkel preparing for no deal. So what, how is all this looking from that? 
Well, from the European perspective, it's always been quite clear, and they've been saying what they've been consistently saying over the past two years that you know there can be no division of the four freedoms. So any kind of deal which gives Britain, um, you know, a, a deal on goods, but you know, special treatment on services, it's just not going to fly. Not because they're trying to punish Britain, but it's simply not in their long-term strategic or economic interest to give Britain that deal. I mean, we've dissected this ad infinitum, so nothing has changed. So even when Michel Barnier came out a few weeks ago and said, you know, we're going to give uh, Britain an unprecedented deal, that did not mean that the Commission's position was softening. Literally, it's an unprecedented deal because no member has ever left the European Union before. <laughs> so, you know, uh, for me, it's always quite interesting to look at what's being said in um, European circles and how those comments are interpreted here in the UK. So as far as the EU27 are concerned, still the impetus is with the Commission. So all this nonsense about going over the heads of Michel Barnier and going directly to the, you know, directly to Merkel, forget it. You know, it's not going to happen. Having said that, it is on the minds of European leaders. Brexit is not the top priority, but it is on their minds that, uh oh, you know, the crunch time is kind of coming. And from what I hear, you know, they hope to conclude a deal sometime in November if they'll, they'll call a special uh, European Council summit. But the fundamentals have not moved. So you can wrap it up all you want. But if you look at the history of the negotiations of the past two years, at every moment, the UK has capitulated to the EU's position. So you, you could call it something else. Don't call it free movement. Call it a migration framework. Uh, but the EU will not compromise on those things. OK, thanks. Let's stay on the wingnut fringe for a little while longer. Uh, stung by the accusation that they're full of shit and have nothing to <laughs> offer, the European Research Group commissioned their own draft plan for Brexit. When it was leaked <laughs> earlier this week, it included such novelties as a new Falkland Expeditionary Force, so Brexit Britain can tell invaders to stick it up their hunter, <laughs> and a Star Wars-style missile defence shield to protect us from nuclear attack. I think this was designed by me when I was 10. <laughs> really into Falcons War and two tribes. <laughs> More serious proposals include a Canada-style deal with the EU with no common rules, or plain WTO membership if and when the EU rejected that, plus an invisible customs border with Ireland. Again, something I may have come up with. <laughs> it's invisible. <laughs> and you'll be surprised to learn massive tax cuts. Unfortunately, the whole thing fell apart on Wednesday when it turned out that a bunch of serial complainers could not agree on their own plan and shelved it. Um, neither the Tories sort of portray that Labour uh, under Corbyn is sort of living in the past. But Star Wars on the Falklands is, is proper 80s, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, is anything related to Brexit, do you do associate it with forward-looking, progressive thinking? I mean, come on, this is all... Uh, I mean, in particular, the European interpretation of this on the continent is a very retrospective, you know, Great Britain, Empire, rah, rah, you know, we gave them the railways kind of mentality. So I don't think anything... It doesn't surprise me. I mean, look at the members of the ERG. They, they, if you think that they are progressive, you know, looking thinkers. And I, I think that's simply mistaken. It's but that's, um, it, it is interesting because Gary Young did a piece where he, mm. about imperialist fantasies and whether, and whether they were kind of behind Brexit. And it's epic how many of the people behind the Leave project were raised in, you know, Kenya or Zimbabwe or as a part of a kind of colonialist yeah. overhang. And they do have the, all their references and their touch points are incredibly dated mm -hmm. and they are harking back to a time when Britain was great that most of us don't even have in our kind of emotional canon because 
with, because we, we, we'd already moved on by the 80s. Well, they, yeah, when they talk about sort of Britain alone, it's sort of, yeah, I do wonder if, if in their head they think Britain and its colonies. But it is very you much. Know. It's like if, you, like if you know people who were raised in the colonies, my mother and my uncle were, and they, and it does. There is a very peculiar. It it sort of freezes. I mean, not not. I'm not saying this about them because they they're progressives, um, but it does sort of freeze your conception of nationality in the past because you're not actually in your country. You're a colonial oppressor somewhere else. So you're kind of frozen in a sense of Britain as something that nobody recognises who's actually in Britain. Ross, do you think this is a sort of Brewster's Million-style plan to spend the £1.1 trillion the Mogg insists we will reap from no-deal Brexit? That's a lot of money. You've got to spend it on something. So why not space shields? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I... Uh, I, I, I find it hard to, hard, to, hard to credit that we're still thinking about it? the Falklands. You know, I mean, I'm 43, for God's sake, and I was only seven when the Falklands were invaded. I mean, how many of us actually remember this stuff? It's <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you're right, So I mean, it's um, this not-quite-colonial mentality, but there is actually some evidence out there that shows that the more uh, links you have with uh, ex-colonies and English-speaking countries, so the US, Canada, you know, New Zealand, Australia, and so on and so forth, um, the, the more likely you are to be pro-Brexit, the more links you have with the you surprise surprise more it is it is actually a, a um, documented mm. fact it's interesting but they call it the white commonwealth don't they or the white mm. yeah yeah they, they're kind horrible, of horrible i know it's absolutely horrible but it's, yeah. it's like it's, it goes by the name five eyes or brackets the white commonwealth and it means so you know offensive. if we just yeah. if we just concentrate on canada new zealand australia america and whichever the fifth one is i can't remember um then we'll be fine because we're the white commonwealth mm. <laughs> um these people are crackers well, you can maybe see why that they haven't proposed plans before now, because they're rubbish and they look really bad and it exposes them as the far-right fantasists that they are. But this is the really distressing thing, that, you know, there is a reason why they've been able to spend two years not saying anything concrete, and that goes for everybody on the Tory, on the Tory side. It is a... It is a awful dereliction of public duty to allow this to carry on. You know, it's like they should have been able to thrash out on morning one of the post of post Leave Britain. We can't agree on anything. We need to go back to the drawing board. Mm. They should have been able to do that in morning one. And the fact that they've put us through this misery and, you know, it's already had profound economic effects and profound effects on just the kind of optimism of the nation. And I really, I'm just really astonished that they don't have the patriotism themselves to kind of call it, call it, call it a day. They're just terrible people, though. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, I'm talking of terrible people. The Economists for Free Trade launch did actually happen. Um, was there just, just quickly? Was there anything in there that we that we didn't expect? It seemed to be the usual kind of low tax, low regulation. Isn't the funniest thing about that they've only got one economist? Mm. (laughs) Roger Bootle, yes. An outlier. Is it Minford? Minford. Patrick Minford. Minford. Oh, actually, there are two. You're right. I I tell a lie. There are two. It's technically true. It is economists. But, you know, (laughs) stacked against the vast majority, uh, there are are a few economists out there who are pro-Brexit. Very, very few. The BBC reported it, uh, I think, quite annoyingly, as economists say nothing to fear from no deal, Brexit. Um... Not 
to economists. Mm. Uh, is this sort of false balance in, in action yet again? Is this, is this still... Uh, Arian Dunt sort of... Mm. Arian. Arian. Complained, <laughs> about, um, complained about this on, on Twitter uh, today, that, that it was... Um, it's just that you can't present it like that. You can't just sort of frame it as if economists... Well, I think the BBC is in the same situation as many kind of middle-of-the-road MPs, which is that they want to be the voice of consensus they want to be the voice of common sense they want to be the voice of reason they don't want to they don't want to push any boundaries but actually ac- accepting as common sense the the situation because it exists when the situation is is nonsensical puts them in this really awkward space where they can't they've got they've got no authority they've got no kind of investigative capacity and and they're constantly just kind of buffeted by the winds of, around them. Well, I recently read something about uh, Joseph McCarthy and James Reston, who was a veteran New York Times reporter, in his memoirs, basically going why McCarthy was the first person to hack the, the US press. And he said, basically, he knew that he could tell a lie and you would have to report the lie, even if... Yeah. Even if someone else, editorially, you were going, it's a lie. On the front page, it was reported. So he got the coverage. A lot of people didn't find out it was a lie. And he said it exploited the cult of objectivity. How does? And, how do you mean? I don't get it. The oh, cult of objectivity, objectivity in the yeah, media yeah, yeah, that yeah, you just yeah. have to present it, even if you know it's... You can't say that yeah, it's a yeah. lie. And I just thought... And he was writing, he was writing this in the 90s, about the 50s. And yeah, I thought, yeah. well, the cult of objectivity, if you, if you want to exploit it, it's still really easy. Yeah. But it's... I hate to be all boring, and sort of, but I've worked for the BBC and I've written headlines for the BBC's editorial systems. You have literally a small number of characters that you have to fit a headline in. It's incredibly difficult to do. But wankers is shorter than economists. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I, I know. I told you I was going to be boring. But it's really hard. you know. But when, when the main event of the day is someone saying Brexit is going to be great, when you haven't necessarily got a big counter saying Brexit isn't going to be great, then you know you do a headline like that and you stick it in inverted commas to make mm. it, which is what they did. Um, you know, I hate, I hate to be boring, but it is practically speaking then, really hard to do. But no, but you also have to make a kind of editorial call, right? And say, well, maybe don't cover it. Well... How can they not cover it? Come on. How can't ignore, they, can't ignore Minford. Mm. <laughs> exactly, Minford. that seminal figure. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the ERG might not have a plan, but the Treasury does, and it's got the exciting name of Operation Yellowhammer, starring <laughs> Jason Bourne. Pages photographed in the hands of a Treasury official raised a swathe of concerns such as inter- interrupted rail freight access to the EU and serious disruption in financial services. The plan is overseen by the Civil Contingencies Secretariat which usually deals with emergencies such as floods and disease outbreaks. Meanwhile, according to the Times, the National Police Coordination Centre is planning for widespread civil disorder, increased theft and robbery, and a period of civil unrest running three months either side of March 29. <laughs> I don't think that's specific. I, I don't think that they're kind of uh, arranging it for a deadline there. OK, guys, down bricks. The civil unrest is over. Um, sorry, Labour's Barry Gardner, among others, have warned of unrest if we don't go through with Brexit, so is it a sort of case of, of choose your riots? And I'm is there so a good reason for thinking that the people who haven't, hasn't been a major riot since I'm so 2011, yeah, yeah, yeah. is there a reason to think that the, the nation is boiling and there's going to be violence on the streets with or without Brexit? I'm, I am really, really sick of the spectre of the far right being used as a really good reason to do whatever the far right wants. I just think it's it's completely specious. Logically, it's specious, but morally, it's specious. You know, you don't say, oh, UKIP's going to be really, really angry if we give women maternity leave. We better not. You know, the fact is some people are very upset by 
progressive ideas and values that we believe in and and you just have to take it you can't you can't forestall it um gardener i don't take that seriously but this is quite a, a kind of common line among people who i take more seriously that you know we kind of, we've kind of raised the beast now and if we don't give the beast what it wants then the beast will be angry i don't think it's an unreasonable position but i don't think giving them the brexit they want stops that i mean the truth of it is if we if we deliver them their no deal brexit or their armageddon brexit it, it everybody's going to get a lot poorer and being poor is not a well-known salve to political anger. I think, it, you, you know, you do have to think about this in terms of what people are actually voting for and what that anger is. I think a lot of the anger is legitimate, but you don't, you know, if you vote for something that doesn't really meet the, your needs because you're angry about something else, then being given the thing you voted for isn't going to help. Nina, what do you think of the, the, the spectre of civil unrest being kind of raised... Uh, you know, but but on, on both sides by different by different people as a kind of. I mean, it seems. Um, I mean, do you think it's unnecessarily? Um, is, is it sort of hysterical, or do you think there's some sort of validity? I think there's validity. Certainly, I grew up in South Asia, and we often saw civil unrest there. You know, that's when you really live in a state where the state isn't functioning, so there's kind of no trust or bond between citizens and government. Then you can see how this veneer of civilization is actually very thin and can break down very quickly. You know, the same would happen in London. Let's say that the cash points weren't giving out cash for a few days, or there weren't wasn't food in the supermarkets. It would very quickly break down. And of course, those are the scenarios that are plausible under the worst kind of no-deal Brexit, where the fl- fl- you know the planes aren't flying, there's no food in the supermarket, which, by the way, the government is really planning for. You know, they're <laughs> really making contingency plans yeah. for that. We're not just making it up. So I think it isn't hysterical. It's certainly true. But I think longer term, there's a much more important question here, and that is about trust in public institutions. And this whole exercise... I guarantee you, is going to make people on whatever side you stand, whether you're a Remainer or a Brexiteer, you're going to the trust in the British government and the institutions has been so undermined that I think long term that has a much more malign, um, perhaps less dramatic, Mm. visible effect, but one that will play out for many years to come. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that, you know, there there is no Brexit that, that somebody won't exploit as not enough Brexit. So whatever kind of Brexit we got... Boris Johnson or somebody like him would say, well, the reason this isn't working is because it wasn't Brexity enough. Well, the, particularly the far right. I mean, the whole point of the far right is they're really far to the right. <laughs> and, it's, and it's very, very hard. And you can never please them. No. no. It's no, just no, like, no. Oh, t- you know, any immigration exactly. is too much. Exactly. You know, any Brexit won't be enough. And I don't want to live in a country that would please them. So I don't know why I'd be afraid of angering them. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think there's traditionally been a mistake, at least in, with the British government or the Conservative Party, that they're going to appease the far right by giving them a little. And that has certainly not proven. I mean, it hasn't worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Ross, is this? Uh, are these kind of fairly hair-raising stories? Are they cutting through? Do you expect, uh, you know, sort of Operation Yellow Hammer to be sort of shifting any Leave voters, or are, you know, are, are we facing a problem where a lot of people have basically shut their ears, and unless you're literally like smashing down their door and raiding their fridge, they're not going to worry? 
No, I think what the problem is fundamentally is that British people like the idea of a bit of civil unrest. They don't actually like it when it happens. <laughs> then they get totally hysterical. But when it, the idea of a bit of upset is quite appealing. You saw it this recently with Julie Birchall. Uh, she gave an interview saying she voted for Brexit because she uh, liked a bit of, um, you know, like liked to shake things up and, uh, well, she, I don't know that she used that word. It was stronger. But it was... Uh, the, the fact is that people like the idea of keeping calm and carrying on in a crisis. They don't actually want the crisis to happen to them. It's what I would, would call a home front mentality. They want the action to be elsewhere. They want to be stoic and watching. And when you think about this country, we don't really have big civil upsets. When you think about what's happening in the States at the moment, where there are literally half a million people being evacuated from the US coastline because of the approach of the hurricane. Can you imagine what would happen if half a million people were being evacuated from the British coastline? We don't have emergencies on that scale because we don't have weather usually on that mm. scale, thank God. And we just do not have these kinds of civil actions. I mean, the poll tax riots, for example, they have acquired mythic status, really. They weren't actually that big compared to the kind of rioting that you see in other European countries routinely and in other parts of the world. But the fact is that as soon as it actually tips into anarchy, we are terrified in this country, terrified. But we like the idea of a bit of it. The thing is, I actually, even though I thought everything she said was wrong, I did agree with Julie Butchell in one sense, which is I, I'm, I am actually grateful for the result because I think we were politically pretending that everything was fine and that 10 years of austerity was fine and that, you know, a, a complete stripping out of the welfare state was fine and the public services were fine and seven years without a pay rise was fine. And we were just in this kind of very, certainly in the media, in this very kind of myopic space where, you know, everything was going tickety-boo except some people were moaning. And I don't think we ever would have had this conversation about what had gone wrong and how to do it differently it, unless we'd been forced to. Well, we are, we're going to talk about that later, oh. actually. So, <laughs> but, you know, some of the underlying problems and what we might do about them. Um, but before, so that's going to be your job, to just <laughs> fix, fix Britain. <laughs> Campaign launched last week, but we had a room full of men. So talking about it would have seemed a little crass. Uh, so now we can fix that. The feminist campaigner Caroline Criado-Perez launched it with the words, Brexit is a feminist issue. Uh, discuss. It's like an essay question. Um, how, how, how do you interpret that? Any of Anyone? us. Okay. Anyone? Anyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there are two ways in which it could be called a feminist issue. And one is the kind of really, really straight, technical, how does this affect women way. And Unison has done a lot of work on this, just kind of how many equality, how much equalities legislation comes from the EU, how much kind of fair, equal pay stuff comes from the EU, how much enforcement comes from the EU, what, what, what recessions do to women in an economy post leaving the EU. I'm kind of, I mean, I, I can't really take all that, and I think it's important, but I think there is a more important element, which is that if this is a far-right project, which I do believe it is, then it is, by definition, also a misogynist project. Mm. And the fact that Theresa May is in charge of it is neither here nor there. And, and, I, and, it, and I do think if you just stand by and let the kind of ascent of the of the Jacob Rees-Mogg's of this world, the man who is against abortion in any circumstance, but fine with Boris Johnson having an affair, you know, you're, allow you're, you're kind of just surrendering to a worldview which makes mincemeat of you. So I, that's, that's, the, that's the feminist in me that would go to the barricades, but I would go to the barricades anyway. 
And do we think the women's campaign can help push the people's vote, Ros? Are its supporters already likely to support the people's vote? I mean, I know, you know, Caroline has been a sort of vocal remainer for some time. Like, would it just be, uh, would it just be sort of folded into that larger movement or can it galvanise new people? Um, possibly. The interesting thing for me about um, women and Brexit is that it was very even. There was a slight majority um, in, in terms of that there were more men than women voted for Brexit. But when you look at the breakdown, it's something like 80% will remain among the uh, youngest cohort and 20% leave. And among the older cohort, two-thirds, the oldest pensioners basically, two-thirds of women voted for Brexit. So you've got a big generational split, split there going on, which you didn't necessarily see so much on the male side. And I think what uh, the people's vote is trying to harness is um, that because it is, you know, a more, it is less likely that older people will come out and uh, demonstrate, and it is sensible in a way to take advantage of the fact that more younger people are, are, are anti-Brexit in this way. Nina, you've uh, uh, been on TV. Um, as, a, as a kind of, uh, as an interviewee. And the campaign has produced a dossier on how women have been excluded from the debate. There are 17% more men than women in the Brexit departments and guests on political talk shows range from 56% to 66% male. Yeah, I mean... Kind of slightly lower than I thought. I often get the impression that it's more. Well, it's, I mean, it's irrefutable that, you know, at least in the public media domain, this is an issue that engages more men than women, at least... Yeah, I mean, and I know that, you know, stations like the BBC will be trying very hard to have gender neutrality. Uh, they don't want to have bias. I think you have to point that out because it's fair. Um, I do think that it is related to women's issues because, for example, if you look at the Brexit movement, one of the main things that's associated with Brexit, for example, all Brexiteers hate the European Convention on Human Rights, right? Even though it has nothing to do with the EU, um, <laughs> which I don't think they've quite figured out yet, but there we go. So... I think this is important to raise because every time um, you see the clamping down or taking away of civil liberties, especially on women or other marginalized groups, which seems to come hand in hand with movements like this, we're always shocked to find that things that we thought were universal truths, you know, liberties and rights that we fought for, which are now ours that cannot be taken away, the line immediately starts getting blurred. So it's not only women, it's also minorities, it's many marginalised communities that seem to be associated with the politics of Brexit. And of course, that is not only true for the UK, that's true in many other countries. If you look at what's associated to Trumpian politics, again, you see similar themes on women and abortion, minority rights. So I absolutely think that, you know, Brexit politics or the politics of Brexit um, are, is, is, is fundamentally linked to the taking away of civil, civil liberties and rights for groups that have um, been marginalised. Well, within the rest of the EU, um, I wonder what, sort of counterfactual here, without the EU, across Europe, um, what would the situation for sort of women and, like you said, these, these minority rights be like without the Convention of Human Rights, without the work of the EU, if it was all up to individual countries? Do you think that there would, we'd be seeing much greater disparities in the rights between the countries that are currently in the EU. No, I mean, like, if you... Again, you have to make the case that I think in Switzerland, women only got the vote in, in, in the 70s. And again, I think Brexiteers found a way for the e to blame the EU for that, which is... <laughs> uh, OK, it's nonsense. Nonetheless, of course, if you have a supranational body, body or institutions that guarantee basic fundamental rights, then mining that away is not going to be helpful to the cause.
So, of course, you can say, well, you know, Britain, we, we would up, uphold those rights even if we weren't in the EU, but then you're denying the irrefutable evidence that Brexiteers tend to want to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, which was incidentally a British idea. So I think came from Winston Churchill after the Second World War. So there's a link there. But it's like like you say, with, uh, the, the problem with the left-wing uh, con- you know, sort of pro-Brexit contingent is that it all seems to be based on the assumption that there will be a left-wing government, a Labour government, <laughs> in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. the idea that actually you're leaving everything on the table and that if it's the wrong kind of Tory government, well, I mean, you could say they're all the wrong kind, but a particularly <laughs> wrong kind of Tory government, then actually, uh, you know, rights can be stripped away or at least sort of scaled back perhaps more. I don't imagine they're just going to come in. I mean, I don't... Well, I think that's the... vendetta dictatorship, but... That's the least bad thing about the Lexit position. The, the, the Lexit position is, is as, as kind of ill-formed, as far as I'm concerned, as, as Boris Johnson's position, you know. I mean, I, I was having an argument with... Some, a hardcore lexiteer the other day who was talking about regional immigration um, targets. It's like and under a left-wing government, we'll have regional immigration and you can decide, you know, if you're London and the southeast, you can decide to have free movement. And you're like, wait, what? You want a, <laughs> you want a border between London and Liverpool? I mean, and does that mean I get free movement, but a Liverpudlian doesn't? This doesn't work at all. You know, it's just nonsense on stilts. It's going to be all these individual... Sort of fiefdoms, It'd be like some King Lear or something. Yeah, exactly. It's a serious proposition. Has it actually been put forward um, as vi- viable? I mean, it very much depends, though, on much, much stronger um, regional governments than we have now. So, you know, obviously we've got Wales and Scotland, but then there would be like uh, a southwest region and there would be a Midlands region and it would be very, very different. We would be a completely different type of country and it would be tied to work visas. So you wouldn't have the permission to work, basically, unless you, you would only get the permission to work if you were working in X, X area. But, yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's completely impractical, but that's the yeah, rationale I mean, it's, behind it's, it. It's, it's daft, but, well, uh, you know. I feel the conversation flowing almost imperceptibly (laughs) into the bit marked Zoe Williams chat. (laughs) Um, Zoe, you've written that it was a mistake uh, among a a few mistakes for the Stronger In campaign to go big on the fear of consequences when another Europe is possible we're pushing a sort of positive idea of the EU as a guarantor of peace rights, collective action and so on. Um, Obviously it's been two odd years since since the referendum. Um, the campaign that you're sort of involved in now, is that something that um, that you think could have, should have happened earlier? Well, we, you know, we did our, we did what we could. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not saying you've seen on your hands. Um, I mean, it was completely eclipsed by, you know, this is going to, this is going to affect the price of beans. This is going to, you know, Armageddon scenarios, and there was very little space for talking about a, the positive um, roots of Europe. You know, nobody talked about. The fact that it was the only set of institutions ever conceived with the aim of peace and reconciliation. Nobody talked about the, the, the kind of notion of European federalism as a means of promoting solidarity and equality. <laughs> Nobody talked. I mean, there, there are kind of, you know, it, it is a genuinely beautiful project which didn't come to, which wasn't realised in the way that it was intended. And I suppose that was part of the problem is that you can't make a case for Europe as it is now. You have to make a case for Europe as it was conceived and Europe as you could make it in the future. And, you know, it's like Adorno said, what we need to discover is not the, need to rediscover is not the past but the dreams of the past we need to discover rediscover what it was about Europe that made it a, a, a kind of values-led progressive set of organizations now 
th- that is kind of one thing. But they, now I think the case has developed. Partly there is a resurgent left in Europe, and it is, and they are a lot of them looking to Jeremy Corbyn because he's just doing in European terms. He's doing so amazingly well. I mean, if you look at how many members the party has, if you look at how they kind of defy expectations, if you look at the fact that they can have all the odds against them and still ultimately not do as badly as you think, he is a kind of role model for the European left, and. They do need. They do need to work together. You know, there is no. There is no means of fighting global global corporations if you're working within borders, because Amazon is just going to move from Germany to Poland. There is no means of doing this. There is no means of promoting the social over the corporate without working across borders. And the second thing is. We do need to fight fascism. There, this is a real spectre. It is transnational, and it does need to be uh, to, to be rejected. So, as far as I'm concerned, the kind of case for Europe, the case for being in Europe, for being in Europe to reform Europe, for being in Europe to deepen your own networks with people who share your values, it gets stronger every day. Not because of Brexit, but because of what's happening in the continent as a whole. And our, our weekly kind of riddle of the Sphinx is the is the question of sort of Corbyn's position on this and the leadership more generally. Um, and, and it basically seems to toggle between its sort of unspoken but quite hardcore Benite Euroscepticism or electoral triangulation, don't lose the lead yeah, I mean, look, What's your I mean, the, the, take on the, the motive? The, the thing is, Corbyn, the whole... The whole summer was lost to anti-Semitism, and I have a, a list of views about that, as long as your arm, which I'll tell you another day. <laughs> um, yeah. The the problem is, on the one hand, there was this kind of pragmatic electoral argument, which was a basically it was a Blairite argument. We can already bank the Remainers. Let's go after the Leavers, mm. and it's exactly mm. like Blair saying, "We've already got the lefties. Let's go after the soft left or the or the centre left." And it was cynical. And I always said, "This is completely cynical." And they were like, "No, we're nothing like Tony Blair. We're nothing like him." But it was that calculation. Now that has been completely overturned. I think if you look at the Best for Britain and Hope Not Hate data, um, there's there's more data coming out soon that I'm not supposed to break the embargo on. But basically, that everything shows, A, most constituencies are now Remain, B, Labour would get a huge electoral boost from going Remain, and all the kind of... And C, that of Labour leavers who won't be swayed, um, Brexit is quite a low salience issue for them. So so actually, the Tories, Tory Brexiters have a much higher salience on Europe than Labour ones. So the pragmatic argument, the cephalogical argument, is dead. And I and and I think I think John McDonnell in particular is starting to realise that. In terms of the kind of Benite ideological argument, they, you know, they, everybody when you pan out wide enough, everybody has a point. You know, there are catas- there are catastrophic problems with the EU. You can point to things which have been anti-social as well as things that have been pro-social. There there is no point remaining in it if we don't think we can make a positive difference to it. So I do, even though I was mocking them earlier, I do have a lot of sympathy with Lexiters, but I don't but ultimately, you know, in the final analysis, I do not think isolation is the way to solve anything. I really I'm really struggling here. I just I suppose I find it very, very hard after, as you say, when everything, all the cephalogical evidence shows that that um, uh, being leave is no longer an electoral advantage, that still the leadership won't change. And for me, that is a sign of a deep intransigence on the mm. part oh, of oh, Corbyn, yeah, no, which will never change I know. and will never enable him to take advantage of all the European connections and European... Uh, 
uh, European parties and European things that, that, he, that he otherwise would do. Because I think he is fundamentally anti-Europe and I think he is a very, very intransigent uh, individual who just does not change. I don't think he's... As, I don't think... I agree with you entirely that he's intransigent. I don't think he's as Benite as, as he seems. And I also don't even think Ben was as Benite as he seemed. I mean, if you watch the debate between him and Roy Jenkins, there was a lot of space in there. Yeah. Um, so I, I disagree that he couldn't come round to a Remain position, but I think the only answer now is deep democracy in the Labour Party. It's not about five guys in a room changing their minds. It's got to be democratic pressure from below. Well, we're coming up to the conference. The TUC have... Um and we have TUC come out for people's vote, or is it just Yeah, the TUC has yeah. come out, yeah. A majority of union members support it in a recent poll. McDonald, Keir Starmer and Len McCluskey have said it should be on the table, which mm-hmm. seems like a subtle difference. So are, are you optimistic? Do you think that, like you said, it, it's not about one man changing his mind, but it's about the kind of the centre of gravity moving? Well, look, there were two, two things happened over the summer. One was Momentum decided not to do a consult- consultation of its members, which I found really dispiriting because the whole point of Momentum is that it's kind of deepening de- democratic levers mm. between members and leadership. And if you c- if they can't even poll them because they're so loyal to the leader, then that's just not what they were set up for. But there we are. But, you know, as you say, the TUC came out... Um, who else came out? Somebody massive. A, a massive union came out. It was... It's, it's only a matter of time before Unite comes out. Mm. The composite... Keir Starmer's doing the composite motion to, right now, in which all those CLP motions are kind of turned into one motion for conference. My feeling is they'll have to get ahead of it. They can't wait till they're on conference floor and change their policy because their members tell them to. Yeah, yeah. And before you go, I just wanted to ask... When you were saying about the, the, the underlying problems that have led to, to that vote in the first yeah. place and about improving the EU, but also, of course, addressing issues here, what, do you, what would you be, if you were, if you were in office mm-hmm. what, and Brexit was stopped, and obviously there would be some anger from people that felt their vote had been ignored, etc., what would you want to say to them that you were going to do that was going to make their lives better in a way that the Brexit would not have? Oh, my God. I mean, I'd just say exactly what I would say anyway, which is, you know, we do have a problem with stagnant wages. We do have a problem with overinflated housing. We do have a problem with people not able to tell whether they can afford their rent at the end of the week, and usually that's a no. We do have a problem with insecure working conditions and hyper-surveillance at work. We do have kind of neo-Victorian conditions in places like Sports Direct. We do have massive, massive problems Um very few of which are related to the EU, but all of which should have been better prevented by the EU. So, you know, I'm not sure I would even incorporate the EU into the argument against those things. I think you need a left-wing platform. Thank you, Zoe. Thanks for coming in. We're coming to the end of the show. Uh, I'm afraid this week we've got no time for but your emails, but we'll definitely do some next week. So keep them coming to info@romaniacs.com. Mark them for podcasts and we'll read out the best ones. And no time for the Brexit time capsule, um, but we'll, we'll top that up next week. We're finishing with your traditional clip of a non-English EU language. Here's listener David Hollister with a spirited bit of French, including Alan Lomax-style local ambient sound. Allez les gars, vous savez que le Brexit c'est une foutaise. Arrêtez vos conneries tout de suite. That means, come on chaps, very French word. You know that Brexit is crap, stop this bullshit. <laughs> Send us your farewell clip in a European language. Just record something on your phone and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Many thanks to special guest Zoe Williams, who was had to run off to change Britain for the better. And thanks to Ros and Nina too. We'll see you soon.
I'm off to practice my scales for a maniacs live tonight. In the meantime, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a shout out to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thanks from me to Jan Buanik, Peter Hinckley, Miklos Gialog, Joseph Ford, Ian Ford and Helen Southey. And hello from me to Jeff G, Graham Seifert, Emily Walker, Gavin Brown, Hardwin Jones and Pam Myers. And thanks from me to Chris Atherton, Claire Hanna, Chris Betterton, Ollie Downward, Hugh Lewis, without the news, and James Reed. See you next week. Romaniacs was produced by Andrew Harrison and presented by Dorian Linsky with Roz Taylor and Nina Schick. Studio production was by me, Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.